We were in Lake Placid two weeks ago. I was traveling for the college, and our route was taking us right through Lake Placid. And so uh, we decided as a family to stop and take a few days, since we had a few days between events, and to stop and enjoy Lake Placid, which is a beautiful part of the state. And part of our time there, we stopped and took a tour of Herb Brooks Arena, which, as many of you will know, is the location of the, one of the most famous hockey games ever. And hockey is always glorious, so you have got to check out uh, an arena like this. Uh, it's 1980, and they just call it the game in Lake Placid. It's the game. Uh, USA versus the Soviet team in the 1980 Olympics, the height of the Cold War. Uh, in the news at that time was the Iranian hostage crisis. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, U.S. interest rates were 18%, gas prices were high, morale was low, and in a preseason, in in an exhibition game leading up to that game in Madison Square Garden, the Soviets had beat the U.S. team 10 to 3. We didn't stand a chance. There was no hope for the American team. There were professionals on the Soviet team, amateurs, college athletes on the American team. We didn't stand a chance. That night, uh, the, the, I believe the attendance, uh, the capacity in the arena was about 8,000, and we had a tour guide who was there, part of the committee that hosted, that brought the, the Olympics to Lake Placid, and he said attendance was way beyond capacity. They had to have guards standing at the doors to keep more people from coming in, despite the, the fact that the USA team had no hope. And it became the miracle on ice. Against all odds, the US team, uh, even though they're dramatically outshot, beat the Soviet team. And in the final moments of the game, Al Michaels made the famous call, counting down the clock to the USA victory, which didn't result in the gold medal, but did, res- did allow them to go on and play the gold medal game, which they won. And Al Michaels famously called out, Do you believe in miracles? And the place went nuts. And Lake Placid just oozes that story. Uh, it's, there's so much more than just that 35-year-old hockey game going on in Lake Placid. But sometimes you wouldn't know it <laughs> because they just talk about the game and it's everywhere. Reminders of that game, t-shirts and posters and signs of the game. It's an amazing story that has just gripped that place. And, you know, as somebody who lives in a small town, you can't help but feel good for another small town that got to be in the limelight like that for a moment. It, it was really significant for them. I think popul- population is really small there when the tourists like me aren't there. Um, But the story of that game has shaped the people of Lake Placid. It's shaped that community, and they keep telling and telling and retelling the story. And I think as long as Lake Placid is there, they'll be retelling that story. Um, We all have stories like that, that we tell and retell, that have shaped us, have become a part of the fabric of who we are, and the, the stories of our communities and the stories of our lives. And we tell those stories, and we retell them. And even if they never come out of our mouths, we rehearse them between our ears. And in the life of King David, of course, we all know the story of Goliath. If you defeat a ginormous champion warrior, you're going to tell and retell that story. And you're going to make sure your grandchildren and great-grandchildren tell and retell that story. But there's one story in David's life that doesn't get told very often. It doesn't show up in children's books story form very often. It hasn't been picked up by the fine people at VeggieTales. And (laughs) 2 Samuel chapter 24 uh, Cindy, congratulations to the Austins on 35 years. Blessings to you. Uh, Cindy read it from 1 Chronicles 21, where this, this story is repeated almost verbatim as it is in, in 2 Samuel 24. And it's a bizarre story. It's a, it's a weird story. And I'm going to invite you to turn there this morning if you would. We'll also have it up on the screen. Uh, in case I'm unfamiliar to you, my name is Steve Dunmire. I, I was a pastor for 12 years in the Buffalo-Niagara region. 
uh, born and raised Western New Yorker, and these days I work in the college's Office of Ministry Resources. Uh, I might be an unfamiliar face because I've been in 11 different churches in the last 15 weeks, uh, preaching and leading worship in many of those, but not all. And I uh, had a chance over the last couple months to be in Toronto and Syracuse and Canandaigua and Buffalo and northern Maine. And I don't necessarily recommend it for everyone, but I'm having the time of my life, just having a wonderful time serving uh, churches and pastors this way. In fact, I think Pastor Wes asked me to preach this morning just to make sure we showed up in church one time this summer. Uh, uh, last week, actually, I preached in Holt- at Holton Wesleyan Church in Holton, Maine. And I think I might be the first person in history to preach in Holton, Maine and Houghton, New York in consecutive weeks. And, I was a little bit nervous I was going to be at the wrong place in the wrong week, but I'm glad uh, there wasn't somebody else standing up here this morning. But again, uh, 2, King, uh, 2 Samuel 24, beginning verse 1, uh, we'll take a look at this verse, uh, these verses this morning together. Begins saying, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of the Lord see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. And so this bizarre scene starts with David taking a census, and just so happens that the census turns out to be a sin. And that's kind of weird. How in the world is a census a sin? Uh, how, how, are, how is counting a sin? In my entire life, of all the temptations I've faced in my life, I've never been tempted to do long division. <laughs> and it's a baffling start to this whole scene that the census is somehow sinful. One theory is that David, instead of living by faith as king as he was supposed to, had been caught flexing his muscles in the bathroom mirror. And I was just tempted to flex, but I didn't want to scare the little children. Uh, another theory is that... <laughs> Don't underestimate skinny guys. Uh, another theory is perhaps it's like if you lived in a, in a state where income tax was outlawed and the governor began to send out W-2 forms to everybody. Uh, you connect the dots pretty quickly. Another scholar says that uh, perhaps the census was putting David on the track towards a, a, a tyranny of some sort, towards uh, depersonalized tyranny in the kingdom of Israel. And that was what God was responding to. Uh, John Wesley preached on this in London in 1775, and he says... It does not clearly appear wherein the sin of thus numbering the people consisted. There is no express prohibition of it in any of the scriptures. And so we're left to wonder, what in the world is going on here? And, I mean, if, if God is so outraged by David's census, he should see my property taxes. Talk about un- unholy numbers. Come on. But just to be clear, counting is not a sin. Counting is not a sin. Calculus is evil. But <laughs> counting is not a sin. And if you're looking for neat, clear, tidy explanations of what's going on here, we're not going to find them in this passage. This is one of these passages that is frankly helpful to us as Christians that keeps us from feeling like we can control this too much. That there are some things we're just never going to quite get a full grasp on. Um, But in David's case, the census happens. Nobody needs to explain to him why it's a sin. He just knows. Joab confronts him earlier, but eventually in 1 Chronicles when it comes out, when he's handed the numbers, immediately he's grief-stricken. Look at verse 10. It says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a foolish thing. So he just knows it. He's, he's not confronted. Just, he's grief-stricken in his heart as these numbers are presented to him. And God gives him a choice. He eventually gives him three options for his punishment. 
and allows David to choose which that's going to be. Um, we have twin boys, identical twin boys. They're nine years old, and they are awesome. We've got a picture of my, my three boys up here. From, yeah, aren't they awesome? Uh, the best. And watching them, they're, they're a lot alike, but they're a lot different. Uh, watching my twins in action makes me wish that I had a twin. Uh, they're just, it's so much fun to, to watch them always have a friend with everything they do. But so, even sometimes in their lives, uh, because they're so much alike, because they're always together, they get to fighting. And I remember one time not long ago, uh, they had been fighting like cats and dogs all day. And so Tammy sat them down and said, she, she forced them after all this day of cat, fighting like cats and dogs, she sat them down and said, uh, you need to, each of you, before you can do anything else, say something as a compliment. Say something you like about your twin. And it was quiet. And then Matthew spoke up, looked at his twin brother John and said, you are very handsome. <laughs> and so David is given this choice by God in response to this situation. And the options are three years of famine, three years of being swept away by your enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord, a plague in the land. None of those are very appealing. None of those is going to Addie's after church to cool off. It's a pretty dire situation. Uh, and so as strange as it is, people are going to get hurt because of a census. Everybody is going to get hurt. 70,000 people are going to die because of a stinking census. And it feels unju- unjust. As hard as it is to wrap my head around why a census is somehow sinful, it's even harder to understand why Joab has to pay for David's sins. I mean, Joab tried to stop him. Even in, in general, generally cases of war, if you do something and it comes up as a war crime, there's the defense of superior orders where you can just say, I was just following orders. It wasn't my decision. I didn't even want to do it, but I was following orders. And it doesn't always stand up in court, but sometimes you can at least get lesser charges. But none of that for Joab. None of that for the nation of Israel. They're all going to suffer, and it just feels so unjust. And if we slip into the sandals of Scripture for a moment here, we can all relate to Joab and the nation. Because we've all been hurt, sometimes ruthlessly, by other people. Sometimes it's the unintended consequences of somebody else's behavior. Sometimes it's a friend who turns and stabs us in the back and betrays us. Somebody who starts saying things about you in town that aren't true or aren't kind. Or sometimes you have to make a tough decision and you make that decision and people just twist that and turn that and question your motivation and what you're doing. Maybe it's some person who decides that they have something that you need to hear and so they sit down behind a computer and type out a really courageous email and send it off with all the courage of an unmanned military drone sent in Christian love to blow up your day. And as much as you want to try to convince yourself that you just can't listen to that stuff, it just leaves you sore. And you can't quite shake that. If you've never been hurt, I'm sorry for wasting your time today, but I'm really interested to see David's response to this whole thing, what his choice is. In verse 14, here's, here's David's answer. David said to Gad... I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. And the most common interpretation of this is that David is just simply throwing himself at the mercy of God, which is right. He's not pleading his case. He's not trying to get out of this somehow or another. He's saying, whatever the Lord sees right, let's do that. And that's right. But I also think there's something more going on here. 
first of all, it's common for the heads of state to want to avoid falling into the hands of the average citizen. Even King Saul, his, pre- his successor, his, sorry, his pre- predecessor, when his time came to an end and it, and it was clear that he was about to be captured, he said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellow will, fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. And often when dictators fall throughout the world, if they fall into the hands of their enemies, it doesn't look very pretty. And they often meet gruesome ends. Even in our nation, we aren't always very nice to outgoing politicians. Uh, but secondly, and more importantly, isolation was David's routine at this point in his life. That was the modus operandi of, is that, did I even use that right? I don't know. Uh, it was the way he operated at this point in his life. Uh, David had failed the, to discipline his son Amnon after he had assaulted his daughter Tamar. And his failure to act drove Absalom into such a rage that he took matters into his own hand and took vengeance against Amnon and killed Amnon to avenge his sister Tamar. Even after that, David just sat on his hands and he didn't speak or didn't see Absalom for five years. They lived in isolation from one another for five years. Didn't even go and see him and say, this is wrong to do this, you shouldn't have done this. For five years, he didn't talk to Absalom. And after five years, Absalom was in such a frenzy over this that he led a revolt against his father, David, and died in the midst of that revolt. At this point in his life, David has systematically isolated himself from everyone. And in the words of Eugene Peterson, when David died, no one lamented him, let alone magnificently. He died in the middle of a family squabble with no hint of either tribute or eulogy. Instead of dying in peace with his children and wives gathered around him, expressing love and gratitude, he was embroiled in a mare's nest of intrigue and deceit. Even his last words in 1 Kings were a request to have one of his enemies killed. The dude sure got prickly at the end of his life. And if all that David had said was, let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great, then it comes off as a very faith-filled, owning up to the consequences of his actions kind of thing. But when he adds that phrase, but do not let me fall into human hands, I almost hear him say, I have been a shepherd boy and I have been king. I have defended flocks from wild animals and I have defended nations from armies. I have been overlooked by my father. I have been plotted against by my own sons. I have endured the jealousy of my older brothers and the jealousy of King Saul. And in my life, I have found that people are more cruel and random than God is powerful. God may be powerful, but he's forgiving. People may have only limited power, but they can be unrelenting. He says, people scare me more. I choose God. And now maybe if someone wants to say, David didn't mean that, uh, I'm willing to concede that. I don't think this hangs on that point. Because I know a lot of pastors who would say, I love the Lord. Deliver me from the deacons. (laughs) There are children who don't want to go to the playground because other children are so mean. There are middle schoolers who would do anything to avoid the school cafeteria because other children can just be so torturing. And there are adults who are drowning in loneliness because they've been hurt so many times. They just figure as painful as loneliness is, it's less painful than having to deal with people. And that's David at this point in his life. He is virtually all alone, and he seems to want it that way. Just don't let me fall into the hands of men. Just don't let me fall into human hands. John Orberg says, The North American porcupine is a member of the rodent family that has approximately 30,000 quills. A porcupine is not generally regarded, he says, as a lovable animal. 
Their Latin name means the irritable back, and they all have one, an irritable back, that is. And he goes through and says, you know, virtually every animal has a story or a movie that it appears in as a hero. Dogs and cats and horses, of course, everybody loves dogs and horses, maybe not cats, but uh, <laughs> that's a different sermon for another time. But even pigs have Babe, and spiders have Charlotte's Web, and killer whales have Free Willy, and dolphins have Flipper. He says, even skunks have Pepe Le Pew. But he says, I don't know of a single famous porcupine. Orberg again says, as a general rule, porcupines have two methods for handling relationships. Withdrawal and attack. And David seems to be a bit of a porcupine at this point in his life. You call a group of geese a flock. A group of cattle or a herd. A group of lions is a pride. A group of fish is a school. The Dunmire family on a road trip is a traveling circus. But there is no name for a group of porcupines because they travel alone. And they like it that way. And at the end of his life here, we see evidence that David, this little shepherd boy, has grown into the porcupine man. Just don't let me fall into human hands. Have your worst, just not by people. The real danger isn't that you're going to be hurt. You are going to be hurt. Just once I'd like to have a year where I don't have to forgive anybody for anything they do against me. And where I don't do anything where somebody's got to forgive me. But you're going to be hurt. We're all going to be hurt. The real danger isn't the wound. The real danger is that bitterness and unforgiveness, when it's full grown in your heart, makes you the sort of person who says, just don't let me fall into human hands. It makes you the sort of person who exerts all sorts of energy and attention and doing whatever you have to do just to avoid being hurt again like that. Just to avoid being hurt the way you once were. But in an unexpected twist, at the end of this strange, bizarre chapter, there's an unexpected lesson from the census taker. And if I could just paraphrase the last little bit, if you've got it, just kind of paraphrase verses 15 through 25. But to summarize the rest of the, the ordeal, the sword of the Lord is what David chooses. And so the angel comes down and is inflicting this plague on the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden the Lord says, enough. And the angel stops and he's standing on the threshing floor of Arona. And the man of God comes to David and tells David, go build an altar where the threshing floor of Arona is, where the angel is stopped. Go build an altar there. And so David goes and he finds Arona, the owner of the threshing floor, and he says, I need to buy this threshing floor from you. And Arona is a good citizen. He says, you're my king. I'm not going to sell you my, just take it, take it, take everything, take the oxen. Uh, Take my son. He's been annoying me all day too. And David says, no, no, I, I have to buy it from you. And Arona says, no, no, I insist. You have to just take it from me. You're, you're my king. Just please take the threshing floor. And David says, no, I, I have to give an offering to the Lord. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. And so David buys the threshing floor, and there he builds an altar. And the, the passage ends, the book of Second Samuel ends, then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague of Israel was stopped. And thus ends the books of First and Second Samuel. No wonder why VeggieTales didn't pick it up. It's hard to make up silly songs by Larry about something like this. It's just such a bizarre ending. These epic books of 1 and 2 Samuel, which used to be, of course, one book, uh, ending on such a bizarre, strange, a census is a sin. Joab and the nation is suffering for David's foolishness. David is haggling over the price of this threshing floor with Arona. What in the world is going on here? There's a whole series of YouTube videos called How It Should Have Ended, and they point out the obvious gaps in movies that, how they, those movies should have ended and how many movies could have ended in the opening scene. And how should the, the books of First and Second Samuel have ended? 
pretty much any other way than this. This is probably one of the worst endings you could have dreamed up until you realize that David has just bought the plot of ground that will someday hold the temple of God. His son Solomon will build the temple of God right there in that place. I think a great king like David would have a much better strategy at buying that plot of ground, but he just kind of backs into it in the grace of God. The king is coming, and he just put down a deposit. The king is coming, and this small, simple act is more than meets the eye. That They will build the temple here, and the Shekinah glory of God will come down in this place. People will pray, and God will hear. He will hear their land. And even better than that, we know that the, that the Christ will come, that he will come, and the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, that the, that the Shekinah glory of God will go with Jesus as he walks among us. But before then, for right now, David bought a threshing floor. And that's enough. This little act. You have to start somewhere. All those other things will come, and they will be glorious. But right now, God has a little plot of ground. I love this image of buying the threshing floor uh, as a way of thinking about how to heal from our hurts. Um, It's the first step of healing. It's a place to start. Uh, It's the first of many steps But it's the first step. To me, buying the threshing floor means grabbing a shovel and breaking ground so that forgiveness can get a foothold at the very place that it hurts most in your heart. It means taking the square footage of your life that is so scarred and bruised spiritually and you redeem it so that a garden of grace can grow there. It's creating a place for God to lay a new foundation. It might be simple, it might be small, it might be a baby step, but you have to start somewhere. It may be a simple act of kindness to someone who's hurt you, but you have to start somewhere. It might be sending a note to someone to express some regret, but you have to start somewhere. It may be making a phone call this afternoon that takes all the courage you can muster, but you have to start somewhere. It may be practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. It might be taking serious Jesus' words to forgive from the heart as you have been forgiven. It may be making bitterness and cynicism the enemy, not another person. But you've got to start somewhere. You practice the discipline of not having the last word. You ruthlessly eliminate unforgiveness from your life. You ruthlessly eliminate bitterness from your life. It's responding like the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, when they gathered for church on Sunday, June 21st, just a few days after an act motivated, a despicable act, motivated by racist hatred, killed their pastor and eight other people in the church in a Bible study. Elder John Gillison greeted the packed sanctuary that Sunday morning saying, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Many hearts are broken and tears are still being shed. But though through it all, we are reminded we serve a God who cares. It's responding like the bishop of the United Kingdom, uh, the, the Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox Christian Church in the United Kingdom, whose answer to the beheading of 21 Christians, Coptic Christians in Libya by ISIS was, I forgive them. You've got to start somewhere. So buy the threshing floor. Buy the threshing floor. But there are no discounts. Uh, David knows the sacrifice can't be free, and so he pays full price, and nobody gets a discount on their threshing floor. We all pay full price, and that's why so few people do it. But when you realize how costly bitterness is, (laughs) the threshing floor is a bargain. 
So maybe this morning there's an undeserving person you need to forgive. Or it's not even one specific act you can point to that has really wounded you. It's just the grind of time. And a bunch of little disappointments in people that has worn you down and you need to take a step of faith. Or maybe it's just the simple act of faith that you will not let the wound have the last word. That day at Lake Placid, our tour guide, uh, who was, again, as I said, uh, a part of the committee that had welcomed, brought the, the Olympics to Lake Placid in 1980, he said for years he knew how the game affected the United States, but he never really knew how it affected Russia. Until one day, he said some big, broad-shouldered, intimidating men came walking in, walked through the doors of the arena, into where the rink was, looked at the ice, walked back out and asked a few of the arena workers through a very thick accent, is this where it happened? And they said, yes, this is where the game happened. And in the course of the conversation, the men came out to say, these these men who had been a part of the Soviet Union, came out and said, the Soviet Union didn't fall that day, but it slipped a little. It slipped a little. Soviet Union didn't fall that day of the miracle on ice. It took 11 more years, but it slipped a little that day. The temple didn't get built that day. It would take Solomon when he started from beginning to end 11 years to build that temple that would stand on that site. But now there was a threshing floor that was designated for that purpose. And maybe it's too much to ask you to totally turn the page from some hurt or some wound or some inner infection of your soul that is making you soul sick. But maybe you can help that pain just slip a little. Just a start. Whatever it looks like in your life, maybe you're not ready for full-blown reconciliation. But maybe today is a good day for that pain to slip. Even just a little. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this community and for your word that you continue to use as you always have broken and foolish people to do your greatest work. And with each of us uh, painfully reminded in this moment of wounds that have been inflicted on us, help us to see what our threshing floor is that we can rush out and buy today. A small, simple act that can begin the healing process. Pray this all in the power of Jesus' name and your proven reputation. Amen.